Our next speaker is uh, a lady who has lived um, in many parts of the world, Angola, Ivory Coast, Mali, Ghana, and reported also widely from Namibia, Ethiopia, and Burkina Faso. Between the years of 1996 and 2007, uh, she worked as a journalist mainly for the BBC World uh, Service. And here to talk to us about her memories is Lara Pawson. Morning. What an act to follow. God, <laughs> you, I, when, when, when I was coming, to, uh, when you invited me to come to this, you said, do I mind? Sam says, said to me, do you mind following David Knott? And I said, I don't mind who I follow, and I'm now really regretting. <laughs> How can you follow David Knott? Uh, no, hence, anyway, yeah. we'll do our best. Just talk to me a bit about your time as a war correspondent, because you've, you have a you had and you have a troubled relationship with that role. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'd say is I, I wasn't a war correspondent. Okay. <laughs> um, and I'm very insistent about that. I lived in um, countries, I lived in Angola and Ivory Coast for quite long periods of time. I was in Angola for two and a half years, um, and that was a country at war. I arrived in Angola when the fourth, the so-called fourth war began. Um, in the summer of 1998, and I lived there hmm. um, in Luanda, where there, there wasn't a war. I used to travel into the war. Um, and I think a, you know, a real war correspondent is somebody who, um, rather like David Knott, goes into war zones. They go in and out and in and out and in and out. There are, there are brilliant war correspondents like Jeremy Bowen, Anthony Lloyd, um, but I wasn't one of them. I lived in places with war, and what I, f I, I felt I learnt, and I was thinking a lot about this when David was speaking, was, that, was actually that the differences between countries at war and countries with peace, mm. and I put it in inverted commas because we're obviously a country living in peace, although Britain's been at war for, I think, the last 100 years yeah. non-stop. Somewhere um, in the world, yeah. Yeah, um, but actually, the differences that what I what I experienced was that there weren't as many differences as I thought there would be. There was much more overlap. There's a lot of peace in war, and there's a lot of war in peace. There was some, but in your um, how have you choose to describe your role reporting from there around yeah. events? Yeah, there was um, some the idea that one had to be completely somehow objective, unemotive and ostensibly factual in the reporting, yes. wasn't a position that you felt settled with? It wasn't a position I could uphold. I, c I couldn't be objective. Um, I'm not a grand fan or advocate for objectivity as a journalist. Um, and I'm no longer a journalist, and that's partly why, because I realised I wasn't very good at in a way, at being a journalist. Because you couldn't be objective, because well, you didn't like the objectivity? Yeah, I, d I just don't believe that journalists are objective. I mm. think that it's, it's a nonsense. Mm. I think when the BBC says they're objective, I just think that's not true. Mm. People have their, and I don't even think it's desirable. Um, and I certainly felt living in, in places with conflict that, you know, I felt very passionate about the people I met. And I, in Angola, when there were demonstrations for peace, which I would go and report on, I'd end up sort of shouting for peace with the protesters because mm. that's what I believed in. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I felt I couldn't sustain my position as, as, a, as an objective journalist, and it was one of the reasons 
in the end, why I stopped being a journalist and I began writing books. Although, having followed David, you think, really, what is the point of this <laughs> when he's doing... I mean, really, what's the value of books? But, yeah, I think that objectivity is... Um, is, is, is it's a word that journalists use, and I think it's... I just don't buy it. So, I, on the I one hand, you say it's not desirable. I might ask you a bit more about that. But in yeah. what way do you think it's not actually realised? So, when you say you don't think the BBC is objective... Well, the BBC has a policy of um, you need to get... I mean, it may have changed, but when I was there, um, to, to, to make a story valid, you had to have at least two sources, usually three if possible, on a particular... Um, event. So if there'd been a, um, an, an attack, if there'd been a bombing in Melange when I was in Angola, if there'd been a bombing, I'd have to get at least two sources to confirm that there had been a bombing. And that would be then seen as, as something that you could rely on. Um, or, uh, you know, I'd, I'd do live interviews from, from, um, from explosions from parts of the, of, of, of the war. And uh, I'd do live interviews to London, and they'd say, what's the MPLA saying? That's the government. What's UNITA saying? And that would then be seen as a balanced report. Mm. I mean, you know, I'm sure many people here are listeners of the Today programme, mm. and, and it's a classic Today BBC method to have, you know, somebody from the government, somebody from Labour, two people who are obviously going to disagree with mm. each other. And at the end of it, what have you really learnt? I'm, I'm never convinced by that method. I just think it's an easy form of of entertainment. Yeah, so, so it and, it, and it doesn't provide in any sense the objectivity we're after. Or the knowledge. Mm. I mean, the thing, you know, when I, when I came back from Angola in particular, um, what I found very difficult was that people I knew, people who were close to me, didn't seem to know anything about, about Angola. Nobody seemed to... People would say, where <laughs> have you been? They'd say, was that... Is that Rwanda? I'd say Luanda. They'd say, you mean Rwanda? Mm. People, so I felt that all this work I'd done, all these hours of reporting I'd done, hadn't reached anybody. Um, in fact, you know, I mean, I did most of my work for the World Service, so people around the world knew my work better than people in Britain. But I started to wonder what the point was of, of journalism, particularly when you're reporting from countries that people aren't... Um, sort of people in Britain aren't conventionally typically aware of. But is that saying something about the receptivity of the public to what's being reported, or are you actually saying it's not being reported well enough because it's not reaching people? I think it's both. Mm. I think that um, um, I think that I think the British public don't pay enough attention mm. to world affairs. I think the British public don't pay enough attention to British affairs, mm. hence the situation we're now in. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, I remember being very surprised when I came back from, I think it was Ivory Coast, and we were living in, a, in Hackney, and there was local elections on, and half my very highly educated neighbours didn't know there were local elections. Mm. That would never happen in Angola. Mm. You know, I would walk through shanty towns in, in Luanda or in Abidjan or different parts of the continent where I worked, and you'd meet poor, semi-literate people who knew about elections. They knew about, they knew about the elections in America and France. Um, they were, in many ways, more attuned to what was happening in the world than I think many people are here, and I think that's partly because they're so affected by what happens. Well, you, say, you talk about this. You say that nobody who's witnessed war could in any way um, wish for it, yet... In fact, the, the apathy of peacetime 
worries you. And, yes. that, and that's the kind of apathy you're talking about yes. there, isn't it? That, yes. the, a contentedness, yes. if that's the right word. Yes. Yes. Breeds I mean, detachment. Yeah, I d I, it's probably a bad idea to get too um, stuck into conversations about Brexit, but I feel that very strongly well, about no, we what happened with, with, with the... No, 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 please, <laughs> let's not. But I do feel that quite strongly about, about the referendum, is that there's a sort of complacency, mm. and there was a complacency, complacency. on behalf of the establishment and swathes of the media who, who, who were surprised when we voted to leave. I, d I just didn't think it was surprising at all. I thought, <laughs> of course that's the way we'll vote. It seemed to me to be obvious. Are we, are we, do you think of this, because uh, amongst, so this thing of doubt and objectivity, it's, it resurfaces over and over uh, in this book, the issues of whether one is black or white, in fact, maleness and femaleness, sexuality, heroes and villains, very much. And uh, I recently saw you tweet about Aung, Aung San Suu Kyi, and, you know, that the idea that actually don't, don't we... Don't follow my Well, that we, 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 we kind of valorise people, we yes. turn them into objects yes. of, um, yeah. you know, yeah. adoration. Yeah. But in fact... Um, this was coming up yesterday with David Mitchell. Yeah. They're nuanced and capable of unheroic behaviour. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think there was a bit David who said there's a bit of an angel in every devil mm. and there's a bit of a devil in every angel. Mm. And why would Aung San Suu Kyi be any different? People idealised her as this sort of beautiful Asian woman who was terribly long-suffering and peaceful. And in fact, it turns out she's just like all other politicians, seems to me. Mm. Yeah. Thinking about that a bit then... What is it that drew you? There's, there's something that you've... Uh, it's hard to articulate. What is it that drew you to live in Angola? And what was it? There was something about the presence of war, abhorrent though it was, that was also magnetic to you. Yes. What do you, can you say a bit more about what well, that is? Well, I mean, I, in a way, if I'm honest, I wasn't, I wasn't drawn particularly specifically to Angola. I was offered a job there. Mm. You know, the BBC said, who'd like to go to Angola? And I said, yeah, I'll go. Mm. Um, I wanted to go. I did very much want to go to Ivory Coast. I think, um, I think it's partly because of my anxiety around apathy here that I feel um, from my experiences of traveling and, and, and living abroad and living in places with a lot of extreme poverty where you see the effects of, of British foreign policy and global policy and the IMF and the World Bank and and the system, the world system, where you see it very in a very raw way, um, I feel it brings me up front with my face-to-face um, -face with, with our history, actually. I feel that my experiences living in places like South Africa in particular, where Britain has a very direct, obvious history, has, has taught me a lot about how we live here. I mean, I say all this, I haven't lived abroad now for... Um, since 2008, when I, uh, 2009, when we came back from Johannesburg, we'd been living there for a year. And that's partly because I feel that what I learned from living in other parts of, well, particularly in the African continent, um, made me want to stay here, particularly as this country is sort of nosediving. I feel that now's the time to stay and sit it out and, and fight back and push back, even though actually this is the moment when I'd love nothing more than to leave and maybe go and live in Brazil or, or Portugal. I speak Portuguese and I'd love to go and live in a, in a country that appeals to me more. Although, you know, you look around the world and you see all countries are in a state of crisis. Brazil's in a state of crisis. So I think that 
it, ironically, it may sound like a contradiction, but actually going to live abroad and going to places that are in very clear crisis has taught me a lot about um, the, the state we're in. In what way? What does it tell you about us? Well, that I, I believe, I mean, I'm a great pessimist. I'm a deep pessimist. I think pessimism's a good thing. I, 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 I'm very much a follower of, of um, Antonio Gramsci, um, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Um, <laughs> I, I think you have to be pessimistic to be, to, I mean, that's, you know, my pessimism about the referendum. I thought that paid off. Well, that was the way we went. There's no point trying to hope that things are going to get better when they're not. But optimism of the will is that, isn't it? Well, no, optimism of the will keeps you fighting, right. keeps you fighting, right. keeps you going out on protest, keeps you going, keeps you pushing back against coming to events like this and saying what you think and writing books and um, but pessimism is the reality of climate change of where, where you know where can we can begin on so there's so many areas to be to be realistically pessimistic mm. about and is that the anger because you talk a lot about being really angry I am book. really angry yeah, yeah I, I, I am and I also think anger is a very good thing yeah. I'm often surprised I think partly being a woman people don't people are uneasy with with angry yeah. women um, but I think if you can't be angry today, then when the hell are you going to be angry? <laughs> I mean, it's like... <laughs> Connected with the anger out here. Um, let's have a reading. I never thought Cheltenham would be angry. Oh, they're livid. Can I just... No <laughs> can I take livid. a little bit of yes. water? Thanks. Um, rather like David Mitchell, I... I like to stand up. I think it is because I am angry, and it's easier to sort of breathe if I stand up and read. <laughs> Otherwise, I can't You've got enough breathe. light. I have got plenty yep. of light. I also, I, I like to tell people before I read from this book that this book was never meant to be a book. It was never meant to be public. Um, it was written as a warm-up exercise for a piece of theatre I was involved in in 2014. And um, I still find it really difficult to, to read from because I feel very exposed and, um, and quite embarrassed, actually, about some of the things I've said, but here we go. This is just a, I mean, the book is fragmentary. It doesn't really have a strong narrative, so I can basically read from any bit of it, and some people say none of it makes sense, but it all kind of comes together in a strange way. The image of the soldier in Mbanza, Congo, the one who put a bullet to his brain in the middle of the afternoon, returns again and again. When his wife arrived in the center of the circle of people surrounding him, she screamed with so much pain, it hurt to hear. She told the crowd that he'd been sad for weeks because of all the people he'd killed. What had finally pushed him over the edge, she said, was when the town was taken by the rebels and he'd been forced to fight for them. He'd had to shoot his own men to kill those he knew, and now he had killed himself. I was invited for lunch with the governor of the province, one Ludi Kisasunda. We sat at a long mahogany table in his dining room, just the two of us, talking politics and drinking red wine. Years later, during my research for a book about a purge in the Angolan ruling party, I was told that this generous and gentle host was one of the perpetrators. Yet we had shared such fun at his table, talking and laughing and eating. After coffee, 
he took me on a little tour of the town, and we were followed by lines of people as if we were dignitaries. Six years ago, I sat with my GP listening to his story. Every summer, he goes home to Sri Lanka to offer his skills in hospitals over there. Even at the height of the conflict, he went back and spent weeks treating the sick and the wounded. One year, the hospital where he was working was attacked. Many of the patients were killed. A dozen or so survived. My GP knew that they would have to leave before the next attack, but there was only one vehicle and it couldn't carry everyone. He had to make a choice and decide who to take and who to leave to die. In the end, he took the patients who were most likely to survive the journey. I think about the ones we left behind every day, he said, but there comes a time when you have to accept the decisions you make and let go of the past. He urged me to drop in for a chat whenever I was feeling depressed about my experiences in Angola and Ivory Coast and about the depths of racism in Britain. You don't need therapy, he reassured me. Why not give the Bhagavad Gita a go? Briefly, I did try a bit of therapy. Six sessions. I couldn't be doing with the way she pushed the box of tissues towards me. It conjured, it conjured visions of sperm banks. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, isn't it, that in the cubicle there's always a box of tissues as well as the obligatory mags. And anyway, she was the one who used the tissues, not me. <laughs> Lamenting the consequence of war is the title of the first chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. I wish my GP hadn't retired. I spent a lot of my childhood on a bicycle, pedalling frantically to and from the local stables at half past six in the morning and again at six at night. On my bike, I often pretended that I was on a horse and would concentrate really hard on seeing the stride into a jump. I didn't care what anybody thought. I was completely obsessed. I used to think a lot about John Franken because he could see 16 strides into a jump at a gallop. I don't think I ever did better than three, and that was at a canter. Later in life, as I began to grasp the politics of class, I felt awkward about my horse-loving days, and I still do. I enjoy getting lost. I hate traveling with a map, particularly an electronic one with arrows to tell you in which direction you are or should be facing. I get frustrated when I'm with people who want to map routes in order to avoid getting lost. It makes me feel claustrophobic. I also panic in landlocked countries, which may be why I never really warmed to Mali. I felt trapped by the national borders. I used to wonder back then if Mali was not a country and had no borders, but was simply an undefined area within West Africa. Would I have felt less uncomfortable? Would I have found it easier to live there? It's curious that the sea offers me a sense of escape because I'm afraid of it. I hate watching Jay swim in rough water. I also get anxious when I watch him on certain rides at the fair, even though his face is bursting with pleasure. I never used to be afraid of the sea. I dive into huge waves without a thought. Then, one day, on a small speedboat, crossing a narrow stretch of water to an island off the coast of Luanda, I began trembling with fear. 
I begged the driver to slow down, pleading with the other passengers not to encourage him to go faster. But none of them took much notice, and the driver went faster and faster and faster. I was terrified, and that shocked me. A week or two earlier, I'd been traveling on a truck with about 30 other people. We were fleeing the town of Melange, which was being shelled day in, day out by rebels. It's a long story, but during that journey, I think it's fair to say, we came close to death on several occasions. I sat in the front next to the driver, who'd insisted that a white woman couldn't possibly sit in the back, in the open air, with everyone else. I was balanced on a small wooden stool between him and his wife, who was cradling their newborn. Every time we passed another ambush, the driver would ask me to count the dead. One, two, three, four, five, six, maybe seven or eight melted, charred bodies. He said he couldn't look himself because he'd have to make the same journey many more times and he couldn't afford to be afraid. He was a very brave man, that driver. I feel ashamed that I've forgotten his name. I think of him and his wife and their baby daughter whenever I'm on a motorway or an A-road here in the UK. At the end of that awful journey, he told me that he and his wife had decided to name their baby Lara. For luck, he said. Not long ago, I stopped three men from breaking into my neighbor's house. I yelled at them from my bedroom window, what the fuck do you think you're doing? To which they replied, we're visiting friends. <laughs> and so a row started. Do you always use a crowbar when you're visiting your friends? The skinny one stepped off the pavement, looked up at me with a big smile and said, there are mates, you can mind your own business. I started saying sentences scattered with fucking and assholes, although it wasn't until I used the word police that they began to back away from my neighbor's door. At this point, I charged out of my bedroom, ran down the stairs, and straight out the front door onto the street. I even considered chasing after them, but knew I wouldn't be fast enough. And even if I was, what was I planning to do? As these thoughts were tearing through my mind, the three men were squeezing into a getaway car parked outside Leonard's flat. The black hatchback was gone in seconds, and without my glasses, I couldn't even read the number plate. Watching them disappear, I found myself wishing I'd used the word feds, because I like it. <laughs> <laughs> And the book does that, these, these instances from various times are just poured out with complete honesty onto the page. You weren't actually, you didn't plan it or order it, did you? You just wrote them down as they came to you. Yeah, I, um, um, the, as I said at the begin, uh, before I did the reading, the book was a warm-up exercise. I was working with a theatre director from Manchester and he said to me, I'm going to send you some prompts and I just want you to respond to them. And he sent me uh, a book by Georges Perec, Je me souviens, um, a book by um, another French avant-garde poet, Edouard Levé, and also a, a poem by an American avant-garde poet called Joe Brainard about, called I Remember. And I read this work, and I sat down at my computer, and I just started 
writing my memories, but I had sort of rules which were... Um, I found it much easier to, to write with rules because then you're sort of no longer having to just face the blank page. And my rules were that every single thought I had, I had to put down and they had to follow each other. So I didn't... People have said to me, oh, it's such an amazing structure. How did you work out the structure? I didn't structure the book. I'm really bad at structure. I find structure really difficult. I just followed my memory. And, and, and um, if I couldn't keep up with my memory, which very often I couldn't, I had a long piece of paper at the side of me and I just wrote the list. So every time another thought came down, I'd add it to the list and I would have to follow that list. Another rule I had was that once I'd finished a sentence, I couldn't go back and edit it. Mm -hmm. So I'd write a sentence and then that was it. And I... I mean, really, once the book was finished, I didn't go back and edit it. And when it was finally published as a book, um, I think we changed a couple of commas. And I think there was one word that my editor didn't like that I used uh, to describe Dubai. Um, <laughs> so we changed that. But apart from that, it is just the sort of the, the, the it's a raw piece of work. Um, and actually was quite easy to write because I wasn't worrying about where I was going. I was just thinking, I'm just going to get this down, I'm going to get this down. There was a couple of occasions where I did censor myself. I kept stuff out regarding my family and a couple of friends that I thought, I don't think I should put that in. Mm -hmm. But the rest of it is completely uncensored. There's a moment in it that is where you describe as an epiphany for you uh, in Accra, I think, where you found yourself for the first time as the only white face Yes. In a crowd of black faces. Yes. What year? When was that? What year that was that? That was in 1996, uh, and I had um, I'd been working for Bernie Grant for a bit, actually, who Sheldon mentioned yesterday in Tottenham, in London, uh, and then I was also working with a Nigerian journalist, and he'd said to me, you know, you should you should go out to West Africa and and be a reporter. Um, so I went. I went to Ghana, and I and I I sort of landed in Ghana. I never been to that part of the continent before. I'd only been to Egypt. And I was in a, a bus park with many, many people, lots of people trying to sell me stuff and get me onto different buses. And I suddenly kind of caught my breath in, a, in an anxiety of feeling that I was other. And it was the first, I think it was the first time in my life when I understood what it was to be othered by the way people were looking at me and the fact I was being spoken to differently. Now, obviously, if a white European goes to a West African state, that you immediately, basically, you're part of the elite. It's very different for even a West African, you know, a Ghanaian doctor may come to Britain and immediately be assumed mm. to be a cleaner. Mm. Um, so we have all our, our ideas of race that filter into that. But nevertheless, I still think that the experience of being, appearing to be a minority and being different or appearing to be looking different to the people around you is a very important experience. And I think we all need to have that experience. Yes, uh, you, you talk, I mean, th there's a sense that comes across, but it's more than a sense, you say it, that this is a racist country. Do you believe that's true, Britain? Absolutely, yeah, yeah of course. Say a bit more about that. Uh, well, crikey. Um, I, 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 I mean, I, feel it in so, so, say a bit more about that. Where do I begin? Um, I think that um, the, the, 
Let me give you an example. On, on, on my street where I live in, 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 in Waltham Forest, in Walthamstow, um, a young black teenager was standing in someone's front garden um, with, with, on his telephone, and one of my neighbours called me because I was running a kind of neighbourhood association trying to bring the street together, actually, after Brexit, and, or after the referendum. We haven't Brexited yet. And um, she said, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's one of those dealers outside in someone's front garden. We need to call the police. To cut a long story short, this young man was a um, friend of the daughter who lives in that house. And I had said to the woman, you know, how do you know he's a dealer? She said, well, he's, you know, he's a black guy and he's got, he's got a hoodie. And, um, and I said, well, maybe he's... I don't want to mention the name of the girl, but maybe he's her friend. She's also a young black teenager. Um, this turned into a major... I, because of the way I responded to my neighbour, the police were called, and I was called to a meeting with the police to, um, for accusing my neighbour of, of racism. Um, the, the, so the, the person who I felt had been deeply racist and was, was accusing this man of being a criminal for just standing in someone's front garden got away scot-free and I was invited to, 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 to apologise for my actions. And I feel very much as a privileged, very privileged white woman that we, we, we need to take it upon us to stand up for people who are, being, um, who are, who are, the, who are the targets of racism. I feel that um, too many white people and a fair number of black people, I mean, I would have taken Sheldon up on this yesterday if I'd, if I'd put my hand up a bit higher. I felt that he was taking it too much upon the sort of shoulders of the black community. The black community is supposed to be responsible for, for their state of being. Um, and I feel that not enough, not nearly enough British people, not nearly enough white people in this country think about our... Um, not, you know, racism doesn't have to be part of the BNP. It can just be the way that you look at someone, the way that you, um, the way that you talk to someone, the way that you welcome someone into a home, the way that you sit next to it, the way you interact with people on the bus. Um, and I know from, you know, many of my friends, my closest friends are, 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 are black people, and their daily experiences of life in London, a very metropolitan, cosmopolitan city, are just terrific. You know, people ask them, if they're, if they're staying here all the time? How do they get to stay here? I find questions like that just astonishing in 2017. There's a, another moment in the book where there's a, um, with reference to what you're describing, a French, a French colonel, an Ivory Coast, and he's dividing up civilians. Yes. And he's clearly terrified yes. um, about, you know, who someone is and getting it wrong. Yeah. And that terror, that complete fear, I think he says, and you, you are what? Yeah, it's very he says, toi, yeah. tu es quoi, mm. what, toi? Mm. Uh, uh, to this woman who was a, a rural peasant woman mm. living in a village where there had just been the most horrific massacre, and he was pointing at her mm. and saying, toi, tu es quoi? Mm. I just sort of thought, how astonishing that mm. you would speak to someone. As what you go, are you? What are you? Mm. And what he was trying to to prove to, to me as a journalist was which ethnic group she was and therefore all the assumptions we could make about her. But he was frightened, you, or you got the... He was expressing yeah, I rage. Thought he was terrified. He was terrified. Yeah, I did think he was very, very afraid, and the way that he overcame that was to... He was very tall, he was a very big man, he had these 
French guys then in ivory coats with sort of huge berries. And he sort of drew himself up. They were also all armed, you know, and he pointed at this tiny woman. And I think that was the way that he was coping with his complete... Fear. Yeah, sort of feeling completely discombobulated. Do you think there's a resonance there? Is there any resonance in the racism you recognise in this country or wherever? Do you think that there is a foundational fear within that? Is fear the common denominator? I think that's too generous. Hmm. Possibly. I don't buy fear as, a, as an excuse. Hmm. I Not think an excuse. I think it's ignorance. No. Okay. And a lack of humility. Yeah, okay. okay. And, and maybe a lack of experience. Yes. Of, of, of needing to understand what it feels like to be out of your... Yes comfort zone and to be looked down upon and to be and I d do think that I think being a woman gives you some insight into mm. that I feel as a woman you're very often um, patronized mm. yeah mm. just <laughs> say a bit about um, I'm going to just ask you a bit about because what you, you describe as almost the thrill yes, the words aren't right for this the thrill or the excitement of witnessing war and conflict that there was and you have you know it was hard to describe in the book and you almost hesitated on it a bit is there what is that sense what is that excitement yeah i mean i'm i'm not sure i know what it is but i definitely witnessed it in myself mm. of um being in places where bombs are falling seeing people um on on several occasions being blown up, um, fearing I was going to be blown mm. up, and feeling incredibly excited by mm. it, um, and feeling after that of wanting to go back to it. Mm. And it was something that made me feel very uneasy about being a foreign journalist, about being a reporter right. in war, was this thrill that I got from being putting my body in danger and seeing other people's bodies and lives in danger. Um, and I still feel uncomfortable mm. about that. And it was another reason why, you know, again, why I'd say I wasn't a war correspondent, mm. because war correspondents keep going back to that and keep going back to that. And in the book, I talk about a guy, a really brilliant journalist, Anthony Lloyd, who wrote a book called My War Gone By, I Miss It So, in which he talks about covering the Bosnian, being in Bosnia and covering Bosnia in the 90s. But whenever he came back to London, he'd be a smack addict and he'd go and he'd buy his heroin and he'd mainline and that would be his addiction here. When he went to the war zone, he didn't need the drugs. That was his drug. And when I read that book, I'd, I'd come back from Angola and I felt I, so, I felt I could so profoundly understand that. And I felt really ashamed of myself that I was sort of thrilled by the, the misery of others. Because I think when you're a reporter, you actually, I mean, I wasn't given a flak jacket or a helmet. I had nothing. The BBC just sort of threw me out there and, and I hung on and came back in one piece. But, um, but you feel, I think, and again, it comes from the privilege of being from a, a, a former colonial power. You, you have this sort of sense of history behind you that you'll somehow be safe. 
And I always felt safe. I always kind of thought, I'll be okay. I'm not going to get hit. Mm. Um, and I felt very ashamed of that. I feel, still feel ashamed of that. And I think it's one of the reasons why I'm very reluctant these days to, to travel and go to places, because I feel like I need to curb that indulgence, mm. perhaps. I'm afraid that is all we have time for. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.